Yeah, I do pray that God keeps doing amazing things through us. And that's not a cry of desperation, more a cry of a genuine and expectant hope. Um, I want to welcome Terry and Brenda here. Old friends. Not that old. At least Terry's pretty old. I've known him for about 60 years, but Brenda's only 25. <laughs> it's good to have you here. It's good to embarrass you. Get my own back answers, I'm sure. Yeah, we have an opportunity. <laughs> yes, right. The thing with a small ball like this is people can always reply and everybody can hear you. So. Um, this is the second of a two-part talk, a three-part talk rather, about um, family, about God our Father. And this is called Our Father Part 2, Walking with the Father. The first section was Our Father Part 1, the adoption. I've got, first of all, I've got an apology to make to you, because I listened to myself on tape after a comment um, by a close friend who I'd said to, 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 to check up on my preaching, to keep an eye on it, and tell me if I, if I needed adjustment, to give me encouragement, but also to give me criticism when needed. And uh, uh, she, she said to me, she said, you said something that was wrong. And I listened to my preaching and thought, oh, I did, I did. And partly it was um, something I'd researched, but partly it was when I listened to it, I couldn't believe what I said, because what I said was, clearly, I repeated it, was that Abba, the word Abba, is not a word that children use. Well, it demonstrably is a, church, uh, a word that children use. What I meant to say was, and this will be making excuses for myself, um, was that it's not a word that babies or, or immature children would use, tiny children. I didn't get that across at all, but furthermore... There is, it seems, an argument about the matter, and having researched it again closely, I find that um, there are two sources um, pointed out to me by the, uh, uh, my, my friend, um, John Stott and um, Martin Lloyd Jones, who both make the claim that it is a word that means daddy, or a baby word. But the argument goes on. Some say, no, but it's not that, and in the light in which Paul meant that, or in which Jesus meant it, might be slightly different. Jesus had every right to call God Daddy, but it's unlikely that he would have done so. Two things remain unchallenged and uncontested. The first, Jews of the time would have been offended by the um, idea of calling God Father, even, or Pater, or Papa certainly much more offended by calling him dad or dada. I've never heard anybody use the term dad or dada when praying to God. Never. I can't recall. Maybe some of you have. But there is a degree of familiarity because of our adoption as sons and daughters whereby we can walk into the presence of God. The curtain that um, divided the Holy of Holies was torn, wasn't it, on Jesus' death. Torn apart. And it enabled us to walk through. Those of us who accept Jesus Christ, sacrificed for us, it enables us to walk through into the Holy of Holies boldly. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Secondly, there is the point uncontested that the ability or the right to call someone Abba was only given to those who were natural sons or those who were adopted. It was not allowed for slaves or servants, which is important, desperately important, because we've been taken from 
um, a place of outside the family, a place of uh, um, being cast out because of our sin, and we've been brought into the family, not as in the prodigal son, when the prodigal son returns to his father, if you're familiar with that tale, if not, um, read it in Luke. Um, but we are we are called into family. So whereas the prodigal son said, I will return to my father and just be a servant. That might be our attitude. And that's something we're going to explore in this talk called Walking with the Father. In Psalm 68, verse 5, it says this, He's a father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets prisoners free and gives them joy. Now I would suspect that there's a wealth of different feelings that that simple two-verse um, statement in Psalms brings up. I would suspect that some of you go, yes! And some of you go, yeah. And some of you go, oh, yeah. Because of what you've been through. So we aim in this talk to look at um, how our past experiences affect us in terms of our past experience with parents. No parents are uh, faultless, I'm glad to say. In fact, in conversation with other parents, we get to teenage years, and if we ever thought we were good at anything, then um, we, we, we discuss one to another and nobody thinks they're a brilliant parent. I've never met anybody that thought they were a great success. The only time I was ever, ever thought I was successful as a parent was before I had children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm embarrassed at the things I said, that the, the, uh, the structures I had in place to use with my children that actually got shattered and blown aside when I actually had children. I think that lasted for about six months, didn't it, before it got completely blown away? Yeah, that's because I was stubborn. <laughs> um, these things, both our own parents, the way we're brought up, and that includes both what our parents do and the way we live, social cognition, if you understand what I mean by social cognition, that's um, we are um, born into a culture, we're affected by that culture. In our impressionable years, we take on um, beliefs based on what we are told, which are pretty unshakable. Those things are built into us as part of our nature and character, if you like. Character is probably more accurate word than nature, because nature um, gives the impression of something unchangeable, whereas character is something we build. Um, religious background also has a great effect on us and brings us to where we are at the cross when we first come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. So we, there we are, we've grown up, and at uh, whatever age we've become Christians, we've gained a lot of stuff. Um, if, we've, if we've got to the age where we can make a decision about what the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do with what Christ has done on the cross, then we are old enough to be quite rigid in our belief system and our character. So there we sit. Some of this stuff is good. I have to say, in observation of 50 years of observing these things, perhaps the first couple of years weren't that um, brilliant observing, but I've been a watcher all my life, a watcher. And uh, I have to say, there is more bad in the human heart than good. More of the things that affect us affect us for bad than those that affect us for good before we become Christians. 
We might ask ourselves questions like when we when we hear the the, um, the word uh, um, you know we hear the term that we can call God Abba. We might find things rising up with questions like, is God really interested in me? Does He love me? Will prayed um, for me earlier, and he was praying quite rightly and quite um, generously. And I'm only a speck. And sometimes we can feel of ourselves, well, I'm only a speck, so does God love me? Actually, Will meant that differently. He meant that as an encouragement, because I have to, I rely on the Holy Spirit when I'm up here. If there's, if I recognise who I am, then I'm more reliant on God. So I thank Him for that prayer. <coughs> But we can often find ourselves thinking of ourselves, well, I'm only a speck, I'm only me. Does God really love me? Does God love me only if I do good or if I do things to please him? I remember Terry um, saying, what is that phrase you say? God loves me when I'm good. Can you say it? God loves me when I'm good. It makes him very glad. God loves me when I'm naughty, but it makes him very sad. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and I think that, that sets it in balance, doesn't it? We'll explore that later. Is he like my dad? I was lucky enough to have a dad who loved me. As I said last time in the last talk, my parents didn't love each other, but they both loved me. And I knew that. But a growing number of people in this world don't even have a dad who they can connect to. And a growing number, it seems, or perhaps it's always been static, I don't know, have a dad it was not the best. My dad certainly wasn't the best, but it was pretty darn good. But some I hear of, and the more I hear throughout life, I'm shocked at how an adult can treat a child in such a way. And as children, we believe what our parents tell us. We, we understand that what our parents do is the right way to do things. So we grow up with this feeling, well, if he did it, that must be all right. In fact, in terms of abuse, which is going to the extreme, I've heard a good friend say, well, when someone abuses you, you feel guilty because you think, well, they're an adult, so they must know what they're doing, therefore it must be my fault. So you grow up with a guilt syndrome as well. What's my side of the deal? If God loves me, if, if, he, if, he, if he said oh, he'll be my father, what's my side of the deal? There must be something I have to do. Is another question and consideration. Because we're used to paying for things in this life, aren't we? Nothing's free. Nothing's for nothing. Do you know what? Even salvation wasn't for nothing. God said, I'll give my precious son to die for you. In return, I will take all that filthy muck and put it upon him. You gave, excuse the expression, exactly meant crap for life. That was, the, that was the deal. You gave something you did not want for something that was a treasure, a pearl of great price, beyond price. Life eternal with a dad who loves you. There, I've used the word dad. And then the other thing that considers, that some people do, if I'm God's son or daughter, that means I'm part of a family. We talked about that in Romans week before last. In fact, Derek mentioned about being the family of God last week. If I'm part of a family, what's that like? If I'm part of a family with my past experience of people in general and family specifically, what's that like? 
And then we go to church for a bit as Christians and we find ourselves asking the question again, what is this family like? And yet, I, th I think I made the, the comment two weeks ago that although this family, God's family, the church, the local church, is desperately imperfect, I've come to the conclusion from my observation and my experience that it's the best family that I have ever experienced. You should be proud. Because that's you. So, we've got the effects of how parents bring us up. We've got, which I've gone through, I think, fairly decently enough. And some of you will have had good parents, some of you will have reasonable parents, some of you will have, will have had abysmal parents who've left you scarred. That's where we find ourselves. It's not good, but it is a fact. We find ourselves growing up in a culture, and when I talk about culture, let me use an explanation for this, um, which I think I may have used before, but it's a good one. In this culture, if you're late for a meeting because you met someone on the road, that's not forgivable. So, for instance, if you're heading towards a meeting and you meet someone, it's, quite, it's more acceptable to say, Hi, Neil, nice to see you. I'm late for a meeting. I'll catch up with you. I'll give you a call. And off we go. That's acceptable in this culture. If you're in an uh, uh, Eastern culture, I don't know if it's all Eastern cultures, but uh, certainly Pakistani, I think, culture, wasn't it? The time was, was lasted. Something like that. Or was it generally, maybe? Um, then that is not acceptable. In fact, the opposite is the acceptable social um, um, way. So if you meet somebody that you haven't seen for a while, and you greet them on the street, you, may, you must spend time chatting. That is the, the social accepted norm. How was your mother? How was your father? How are your relatives? Um, how, how is... Uh, you know, it almost seems to go on to the nth generation. He said, and uh, the person who was relating this said it might take up to two hours. <laughs> so you're two hours late for your meeting and you're an Englishman. You almost feel it's not worth turning up. But if you step in there as um, a, a Pakistani or, or, or someone from an Arab culture, and you step into your meeting and say, I'm sorry I'm late, and I met so-and-so on the way, and that will be completely understood. For us, our uh, mindset, uh, the schemas that we have um, implanted and, and have taken on, you can't accept that. We can't accept it, can we? You find that really, really jerky, really unnerving. And there are more things in our lives that are far more fundamental than that that we built in. We think, that's right. We had a book um, from a friend called The, uh, the Races of Mankind, I think. And it was written in the 1870s by an Englishman, of course. And in the front of this book, it's a good book, with lots of early pictures of different tribes. It's probably irrepeatable. Fantastic for looking through. It's so bigoted. In the first page, it's got some... It, we, 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 about why they've the we've written this book so they can understand how people live, that they do not have the benefits of our English society. <laughs> but we're working on it. <laughs> and that's how we can feel. We can, we can grow up with certain um, ideas and things that we build into our character that actually God doesn't like and it needs to change. 
religious experience is something that I'm pretty well versed on, as you know. But perhaps you've grown up um, in a strict religious environment. Perhaps your parents, like mine, said on Sundays you have to do certain things. On weekdays you're allowed to do other things. Perhaps your view of God was that he was there to beat you with a stick. Because that seemed to be the impression that you got from growing up. Um, and I told you before, and I we used to have a bookcase. It was about that size, not very big, about that size, three shelves or four shelves, and it was filled with what Mum called the Sunday books, which were books that we were allowed to read on Sunday. Because we were very religious. So much so that I got the impression I shouldn't read the Bible on other days. Because they were the Sunday books, but all the others must be the other times. So <laughs> And to be honest, you looked at the books in there and they were all um, the woodcut pictures, I think that's what they call them, engravings type things. So there are lots of dark lines, and they're all Victorian. And every Christian in these books, anybody here got an old copy of Pilgrim's Progress? Has it got the old pictures in it? Yeah. And they all have expressions like... <laughs> There's not a Christian in there without stomachache. <laughs> it was not the most enlivening um, subject matter in this... Um, bookcase. So I grew up with the feeling that Christianity was best for Sundays <laughs> and weekdays you could enjoy. <laughs> on my Alpha talks, I, I relate this thing that I often used to wake up on a Sunday morning in our bedroom. Um, I don't think it actually faced east, I think it faced west, but, but sometimes you'd wake up, and if you knew this feeling, you wake up on the summer's morning and the sun streams in. You wake up and it lifts your soul, doesn't it, when the sun's streaming through your bedroom window. And I wake up and think, and then I think, oh no, it's Sunday. <laughs> it didn't matter how hard the sun shone, that was gloom and doom. So for me, God as Father was somebody to keep at arm's length. And it's taken me time to get to know him. Past hurts. All of us have been hurt, haven't we? We're emotional beings, all of us, and all of us have been hurt. Some of us have been hurt relatively little and we get over it but it still leaves scars it still leaves character formating scars if I can put it like that um, for instance if you're hurt by someone you tend to avoid them don't you? natural response because you don't want to get hurt again and we'll talk about how we deal with that in a minute some of us have experienced grievous hurts hurts that no man or woman should ever have to suffer some of us seem to experience a whole life of hurts. And that's unfair. Desperately unfair. But it happens. And we are changed by that. Affected by it. Moulded by it. Oh. What a poor, hopeless being I am. I have all this stuff hard upon my shoulders that affects me, that changes me. What can I do? I'll tell you what it does with me, and I'd like to ask you a question actually, before I do that. Would you describe yourself as confident, relatively confident, sometimes confident, or mostly insecure? So who would describe themselves as confident? If you just put your hand up, you describe yourself as confident. Two, three, three. Describe yourself as confident. Who would describe yourselves as sometimes confident? Yeah. That's most. 
Who would describe yourselves as mostly insecure? That's also me. Why do I not see more hands on? You've been dishonest. I ask that because, see, I know you a bit. And I know myself. If you want more chance, who would describe themselves as mostly insecure? Yeah, that's the honest ones. <laughs> and I see one hand, so both put their hand up for the first question and the last. And that's us as well, isn't it? I'm, I'm a mix. You know, I have a supreme confidence in some things. In fact, I have supreme confidence on one level, at the same time, supreme insecurity on another level. And they both seem to operate in my life at the same time. I don't know how that works, but it does. We might view insecurity as a neutral thing. I'll tell you that my observation from, let's say, 48 years, let's give you two years tolerance, <laughs> of observation, observation of 48 years, I have noticed, and Sam will back me up in this because I say often, that insecurity is responsible for most of our responses. Think about it. Confidence accounts probably, if one wanted to put it on a percentage basis, and what I've observed, probably about 10% of our decisions, certainly let's take that from life of those who are unregenerate, those who don't know Jesus, those who look like the Lord and say, we don't know God as Father, about 10% of our decisions are based on confidence. And those things would mainly be in the workplace. Um, for instance, at 50, I've now decided that I am quite good at some things. Not only up, no. Am I 51? I thought I cancelled that. Okay, then, that's three years old. I can get worse at that. Alzheimer's affects you first on age. So, um, but even in the workplace, and uh, again, Terry will know this better than most of you, I may be good at something, but I still have doubts. Why should that be? If you have been hurt as a child, the chances are that you will carry some remnant of that into your adult life. Your reactions, and you may not be aware of them, will be different to others because of that particular thing that has shaped you and moulded you. That hurt, that social um, um, impartation, that... Um, constant judgment of you on a certain area. It will affect you. We can't help that on all ourselves on a certain level. Willpower may help us a certain amount. But such things are set. I would ask you to um, look at whether you react with anger to some things. And you may say, that's normal. But I wonder if it is normal. Do you react with defensiveness? When someone asks you a question, is your first response an excuse? Without even considering the question on its own merits. Please think about these things. 
Do you find yourself constantly feeling guilty? Because there's always something to be guilty about. I've heard it said that no man can live under constant guilt, that it ruins character. I think that's true. I would say insecurity breeds bigotry. I would say because we, if we can't be challenged comfortably about our views, that's because of insecurity, and it leads to a defensiveness and a bigotry about a thing. Of course, and we argue about it. You get that in religious circles. You get that about all manner of things. Um, food. I, I'm not vegetarian, by the way, but some, I, you know, defensiveness about vegetarian. Because <laughs> actually, we're not very secure about it. Defensiveness about creationism. Defensiveness about global warming. And that we see, don't we? That's probably the thing over the past ten years that's been predominantly in the press as bigotry. For or against? Is the planet warming up? Is it not? If it is warming up, does that mean that it's going to end? And a defensiveness on one part, and a defensiveness on the opposite part to counteract it. And very little secure and uh, honest argument in the middle. And last of all, insecurity in these matters breeds legalism. If I've done something bad, I constantly feel guilty about it. If um, I don't please others, then I must have to do something to counteract it. So within our Christian lives, we end up being legalistic. And in the, Romans, in the um, Hebrew series of two weeks ago, we attempted to just open the lid of that a little bit and talk about the fact that Christ has done it all. It says in Galatians 5, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and then drunkenness and orgies. So the ones that I highlighted there, the ones that I feel particularly apply um, and are, are born out of a basic insecurity in human life, primarily. That's a shocking picture, isn't it? Because I bet those of you who thought you were confident are now wondering whether you are. Because you've seen these things in operation in your lives. You certainly did see them before you became Christian, but I bet you see parts of them, remnants of them, even now. I'm going to talk about that. So the remedy to this must start with confidence. But it can't be a nebulous confidence. It can't be just a self-confidence. Self-confidence is of very little value in this matter. You have to have confidence in somebody who can save you from it, don't you? There has to be a foundation on somebody who can do something about this matter of insecurity and the effects of it and the things we see working out. Anger, resentments, um, and isolation. If I be known, I'll step back. I will cloak myself about with a protective shield. Sometimes that protective shield is anger. Sometimes it's, um, it's just literally isolation. Uh, um, God is, I might have said this before as well, God is, is it has a terrible sense of humour. I love it. I felt his hands on my shoulders shaking with laughter about three times in my life. But I also think it's his, one of his great jokes with me that he chose um, a hermit, a recluse, and made him a pastor. I'm a man of the woods. What I mean by that is up to, like, up to the age of 16, 
I was only comfortable, only felt myself when nobody else could possibly see me. So I go into the woods. <laughs> I don't mean that with a freaky accent. I'm just going down to the it. <laughs> what I meant was, that's where I felt free. Nobody could watch me, nobody could judge me. I could be who I wanted to be. And no one saw. That for me was true freedom at the time. Except it was limited to a very small space on the farm where we lived. <laughs> well, the farm we spent most of our life. I wasn't born on a farm, but I grew up on my grandparents' farm more than anywhere else. We spent all our holidays there. And uh, that helped to shift me. My family was another factor that insulated me from the outside world. We were part of a big family, um, seven including parents. It was enough for us. And we thought we were normal. Because we used to operate within the confines of our family and the wider family. With cousins who were all the same, all from an agricultural background. They say we're all inbred, but there we go, there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, John Salmon reckons we're all inbred because we're strict Baptists, but then there's John Salmon, though. Um, so that was like a, an encapsulation. When I stepped out of that family, I thought, cool, they're weird. Other people are blooming weird, you know. Yeah, it took somebody to come alongside me and, and reach their hand in so I could hold their hand and step out of that um, capsule of water security. In Psalms, this is New Living Translation, it says, but When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God that what he has promised... I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? That gives us confidence to step out if we believe it, doesn't it? You know, we put our foundation in God. And the more and the closer I've got to God, the more I've understood him, the more um, I have unearthed what he means to me, or rather he has shown me what he means to me, the more I have confidence to step out. I can do bolder things. Ben's finished us a two-part series on boldness. And uh, you have to be founded on something before you can be bold. You have to have a foundation on the fact that God is your father. He adopted you. He brought you into his family. Again, Jesus said this in John um, chapter 14, verse 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. Which seems a strange statement, doesn't it? And yet, if we let that, that comment come into our hearts, there is more, in, more than enough room in my father's home. Jesus is using something that we as human beings on this earth can identify with. There is place in God's home for those he has chosen. Are you one of those that he's chosen? If not, the hand is extended to you to accept that gift. And we have somebody who we, who we can identify in the person of Jesus, because he lived as a man, fully man. He understands our weaknesses. He understands how the things of life affect us. Although he was never, it was seen, changed by them, he understands the pressure of those things to conform us, to belittle us, to narrow us, to a tiny, tiny thread 
of pathway. So as we walk forward, we feel, can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. And he, although he says about him saying there is, that the way is narrow, actually compared to the way we choose for ourselves in sin, he broadens it to freedom. To live lives as we were meant to be. Trust in God. Trust also in men. We can trust Jesus. So what are the benefits? In uh, Jeremiah, it says that God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. I have loved you with an everlasting love. The troubles that you have in this life don't get carried over after you die. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. Do you know what else is fantastic? It's worth dwelling on. Is the fact that this life is perhaps up to 80, maybe 90, maybe 100 years old if you're unlucky. Um, you just get your telegram and that's your only consolation. <laughs> But then comes death. But we go on. And we've years without number. No more sickness. No more fear. Actually, can you put that um, song up there if you can find it? We can walk in freedom and who we really are. There's a purpose to this life which we'll, just, um, which we'll explore in another talk. This is what God is to us. You're the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need. You lift us up on wings like eagles. We have, though, to make a decision. I make it daily. I am basically an insecure person. All the things that I talked about today, I experience. Some in part, some majorly. They affect me, but they don't affect me as much as they used to. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians we should always give thanks to God for you beloved brethren because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth you were chosen if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour you are chosen now God knew because he's outside of time so in fact um, our theology is that he has all things before him and all time before him at once we won't go too deeply into the, uh, um, the theology of um, um, election, but sufficient to say that God is not willing that any should perish, that is, that not any should suffer complete separation from him at death. Now, hand is extended to you, if you're not a Christian, to walk into the growing freedom of what God has for you. Um, sanctification... This is a book by um, a man called J.I. Packer, who's a theologian. And it says this about sanctification, which is a word you may not be familiar with. It means to be constantly changed, to be constantly made um, holy, which, which in turn means to be set aside for God's glory. Sanctification, says the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is the work of God's free grace. You've got to concentrate here. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now that was written, um, I'm not sure about the shorter catechism, but the Westminster, um, Westminster Confession was written in the 1600s. So um, isn't it fantastic to know that our confidence 
is not just something we've invented for now, in this day and age. Not something we've just drawn out of a hat, but it's actually based in a firm understanding of the Bible and of God. And then um, J.R. Packer says, the concept is not of sin being totally eradicated. That is to claim too much. Or merely counteracted. That is to claim too little. But of a divinely wrought character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions and virtues. It's ongoing, that sanctification. We're back to the work of the Holy Spirit, where we often end up, we should always end up, with the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, uh, um, if we are Christians, comes to live in us. We can ignore him, if we choose, or we can ask him to increasingly do his work in and through us. In Ephesians, Paul um, talks, I think it's a, it's a good um, cap-off, talks about this whole um, sinful human nature, um, bound-up nature, and freedom in Christ-type nature. Therefore, I, prisoner, um, for serving the Lord, beg you, because he was in prison at the time, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. If you've been called by God, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit. That's with a capital S, Holy Spirit. Binding yourself together with peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, one Spirit in all of us. Just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. And he goes on to talk about gifts given to the church. And he says this about the gifts... Um, and the church being built up by those gifts that, that um, God has given through Christ. This will continue until we have all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. I'm far from mature. Sorry? <laughs> but I'm getting there. I'm being made holy. Little by little, by the work of the Spirit in me. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed about and blown about by every new wind of teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies. So clever that they sound like truth. So when someone says, if you really want to please God, you've got to do this. And we'll be able to say, no, my foundation is secure. <laughs> I don't need to do anything. Do you realise that when Jesus died for you, he did it all? He paid the price for all your sin. And I'm so glad of that because I'm a sinful bugger. I really am. Not deliberately. But I fall into things. I'm not equipped for this life. Do you feel like that sometimes? I'm really not equipped for this life. It's too darn confusing. There are too many pitfalls. Never mind about a crutch for the weak. Never mind about the life support system. I just need somebody's shoulder to hang on to lead me through. And God promises to do that. Thank you. And then in Galatians, it says this in Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit, going back to Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Since we live by the Spirit, excuse me, spitting at you, Sam, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Living and walking with God as our Father is meant to give us security, not the opposite. It's meant to give us complete security. It's meant to give us confidence on the basis to live our lives boldly as we should. Without that foundation of knowing God as Father and exploring that progressively and increasingly through our lives with, by the help of the Holy Spirit, the best efforts at self-improvement are mature and usually destined to fail. Would you stand with me? Right. Sorry that was so long. Am I sorry? No, I'm sorry really. Yeah, I'm not sorry at all, you were just told me not to apologize. So I Lord God, thank you that you love us. Thank you, Father, that you have, from the beginning of time, um, when you set time, and when you first made man, you have destined your, uh, that he should know you. You have revealed yourself to us. Our sin gets in the way. So you provided an antidote through your son. No, not content with providing an antidote, you took us further than Adam ever went. You brought us into your family. I have to say, Father God, I understand that very little. So I call on you, Holy Spirit, to um, teach me more, to teach us more.